0: Hello, I'm Tom Travat, and welcome to Catalyst, the art and politics podcast on Repeater Radio, where I speak to artists, writers, critics, commentators, and avid participants in culture about the political issues of the day and how they relate to their work and their lives. Today, I have an interview with the incredible Christine goding Doty. She introduced herself far better than I could, so let's get straight into it. Hi, uh, hi Christine. Uh, Great to see you. Um, You're coming to to me from New York. Um, So it's nighttime where I am, but it's mid-afternoon where you are. Um, So to begin with, uh, can you tell our listeners um, a little bit about yourself, please?
1: Sure. So I'm Christine Goding-Doty. I'm a visiting assistant professor of Africana Studies at Hobart and William Smith Colleges, which is in Geneva, New York. Um, And in general, I research race in the digital age, focusing particularly on the question of whiteness on the Internet and in social media.
0: Excellent. Um, And your PhD was uh, on on memes. (laughs)
1: memes and more Uh, yeah my phd my phd is in african-american studies from northwestern and um you want the title of it
0: tell me the title yeah
1: okay uh so my phd was titled virtually white the crisis of whiteness racial rule and affect in the digital age so it was generally concerned with the question of how the digital age gives us a new setting to think about how race works, and also gives us a new setting to do race, and you know, a kind of new petri dish for you know through this sort of anonymous participatory media, um, doing race in different ways than we expect to see it in real space.
0: Excellent. Um, and I mean, you, you graduated, you finished your PhD a few years ago, and obviously there's been some significant changes in, in the kind of landscape in America and, and around the world in in those in that time. Um, not least because when you were writing your PhD, and certainly when you were researching, when you started researching your PhD was sort of prior to the Trump era administration. Um, but since since then, I I can't remember. Did you finish your PhD before 2016, or was it kind of it was it was just after, wasn't
1: it? I finished in 2018. So I started writing and thinking about all of these things and the question of whiteness on the internet before Trump was elected, Mm. and then was writing while Trump was president and sort of finished, but then obviously revising for a book. Now we're in the post-Trump moment. Mm. So there've been several waves of contending with what it's like to write about the contemporary moment and, uh, you know, Um, Contending with also what it's like to write about things that, uh, you know, the majority of what people are seeing on the internet don't include or didn't include, um, you know, the spaces that I was occupying on the internet or looking at. Um, And it's been strange not just to, like, write across the Trump presidency, but to write across the period of time where, um, you know, people suddenly know who the Proud Boys are. I don't have to spend as much time like explaining who this, like what, how this group works, right? Or, um, uh, I mean, there are still like really uh, horrible niche things happening in these, <laughs> these spaces on the internet that not everybody knows about. But there is a different kind of awareness about the relationship between um, race, white supremacy, and the internet that was definitely not there in 2013.
0: Let's say sure and. We're now talking in a kind of not just post-Trump era, but we're talking in a kind of post the explosion of of this kind of whiteness on the internet into so-called everyday real life with with the um, the events in in, um, in Washington uh, on Capitol Hill. So we're we're kind of seeing with I suppose you're seeing the importance of your research um, coming into the mainstream or certain certain. Sectors of the mainstream. The discussion is now happening in a way that um, it perhaps wasn't um, when you first started researching this. And also, we're we're, we're speaking now in, in the immediate aftermath of a number of um, um, sort of uh, Asian-based race crimes, mm-hmm. violence against against um, East Southeast Asian communities in the in the U.S. Um, interestingly, and I'm not sure whether you're aware of this, but a report came out. Um, in the UK today, there was a kind of long awaited and um, um, and delayed report that um, is uh, detailing the, whether or not we live in a racist society, whether or not um, mm-hmm. There is in, such thing as institutional racism. It was a report that was commissioned by the um, British Conservative Party, and it came out today. And it's, it it told us all that we don't live in a racist society; that there is no such okay. thing as institutional racism, and that we should stop worrying about it. Essentially, that was the kind of takeaway from it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, a co- so according to um, according to the experts, the establishment, the um, this research suggests that. All of all of the things that you're researching um, just don't exist. Certainly, don't exist in the in the UK. Um, but obviously, what strikes me about the sort of things that you're working on is that you're not really working on it. Although you are, although there is a there are there are certain kind of national boundaries to what you're talking about. They're very porous
1: mm-hmm. because,
0: of course, are they're, they're on the internet. So you know, uh, somebody somebody looking at 4chan or 8chan in, in, in France can see the same information as someone looking at it in upstate New York. Mm-hmm. But, um, but they're just that, do you think there's some kind of national character to each of these kinds of um, sorts of understandings of race? You know, if, we, if we've if we just come through a moment in this country where, um, where we have been told there's no, you know, essentially gaslighted into into thinking that there's there's no such thing as, as institutional racism, and I, I believe there's, there's there was a what was it what's the what's the sort of the date report 1986 report or something like that that Trump commissioned what's that?
1: Oh, <laughs> you put me on the spot, and
0: I <laughs> don't know. <what laughs> I can't <remember>. <laughs> <laughs> we can't have it out. It's fine. Um, so yeah, we're in this kind of in this moment now, I suppose, where on the one hand we have. Uh, Clear examples of, of rising rising um, race based crime in both the US and the UK. Um, yet both of the uh, both both administrations, or certainly at least up until the beginning of this year, both administrations claim that there's no such thing as institutional racism. What do you what do you think the um, the kind of research in, into because of course you know often the, these kinds of issues, are when, when you're looking at issues around racism and or especially whiteness on the internet, you're very often looking at people who are kind of, um, maybe individuals or working in small groups. And then there's kinds of, you know, they connect as networks through places like 4chan and 8chan and then QAnon and so forth. They're not really directly related to um, so-called institutions, so-called establishment institutions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What do, do you think there's some kind of relationship there?
1: Yeah, so there's a, lot, there's a lot in that question that I kind of want to unpack a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the question of national character, right? What's interesting about the internet is that so much of our investment in the internet as users is that the internet is this new sort of open frontier. There's the possibility to create a new kind of utopia and all of that language, which is very deeply colonial <laughs> in itself, you know, resonates with white supremacist projects in all of the places that those projects have taken shape and helps to you know, realize at least some part, the internet as, a, as the connective tool that it is, the kind of communication tool that it is, helps to realize or at least promote that fantasy. So, On the one hand, there is a certain kind of national character to how those, um, like the the major events that are capturing our attention actually manifest in physical space. There will be a kind of national character to each of those, but in the sort of other side of it, the anonymous participatory side of it, the internet has provided for white supremacist groups, uh, a kind of um, shared frontier, right? There's been all, I mean, all sorts of exchange of um, terminology and, you know, vocabulary and imagery and iconography, right? That That has kind of unified those projects. So that's one of the very interesting things of like, you know, going back and forth between like how people are communicating on the internet and then what Shape each of those things actually takes when you get to real space, and I will also say, you know, certain icons on the internet um, when they show up in real space or are taken up or performed in real space, you know, there there is a kind of interplay between the, I don't know, the the cool factor, I guess, or like the sort of fame factor or the inside the insider information factor um, that that you get to exploit if you show up to a protest as like, um, you know, dress, dressed in a particular uniform that right. was glorified or fetish, fetishized online. Okay, so there's that part of it. But then I think there's also, um, there's a, to me a difference between how we may popularly talk about race, which is, often in these debates of whether or not different kinds of institutionalized racism exists. And then, uh, you know, the kind of academic activity (laughs) of trying to define um, what race is and how it's working, whether or not we get those admissions of, you know, reality, I guess, or guilt or, you know, the admission based on the people who are making reports that yes, there is bias or whatever, right? I think that like, you know, this was, this was a thought that I'm kind of losing because it was in the beginning part of your question, but um, uh, but I think, you know, f- for me, part of my project is trying to define and keep track of how race is actually operating, whether or not that is something that gets acknowledged by um, the state or powers that be, right? Like w- w- at any moment in, in Western history, whether or not the West has been willing to admit how it operates is a different activity from you know, the sort of scholarly activity of keeping track of how it is operating.
0: there's something that in these in what you're saying that i thought was really interesting about the way that um, the way that these kinds of tropes that appear in various uh, forums then kind of take on life in in the real world so called real world and it strikes me that um, so often what we're talking about is a certain type of perf- performativity a certain performance a certain performance of whiteness mm-hmm. for example um, and you know, when we, when we think about the kinds of ways in which um, racialization occurs pre the internet, you know, the kind of theories of racialization pre the internet, um, so often the kinds of the discourses, it revolves around forms of socialization and this kind of idea of productions of relations and so forth, relations between the West and the rest or relations between uh, the global North and the global South. Um, whereby whiteness or the Global North or Anglo-European or American spaces are so often seen as neutral and seen as not having, not being marked by racialization. So it seems to me that this kind of performativity of whiteness that is happening in, in the internet, in these internet worlds, um, you know, could this could there could there be some sense of this? I mean, I don't know how you'd how you'd analyze this, but is there some sense that um, you know, by being able to sort of track and trace and look and watch these kinds of tropes um, reappearing kind of throughout these different kind of spaces, that you can actually see the kind of materiality of the performance? You can kind of see the the what is the what is whiteness in, in those kinds of material traces in ways that maybe. Pro, you know prior they were it wasn't so obvious or, or certainly wasn't kind of at the forefront. in that you know the internet allows us or specifically you to kind of um, see that performance of whiteness, I suppose. I, I, it might not it might, it might be, be no different to, um, to performance of whiteness in, in non-internet based realms. it's just that perhaps, the internet's so created around the idea of like meme culture mm-hmm. that you can just, you can, you can kind of create a kind of very, very clear recent history in a sense that it's just like, yeah, there is an image of a frog and there is a, like a sculpture of like this little frog, whatever. And it, you know, you can <laughs> see that kind of lineage through there. I don't know.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, um, There's a way that the, int- that you know, the communication that happens across the internet is sometimes done in a less um, hidden way. Uh, and part of that is the ability to feel emboldened because of how much internet interaction happens anonymously.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But I will say, you know, I think to me, what is interesting about the arrival of the internet is not that it makes things more visible, right? I think, you know, from Du Bois and before, there are, you know, there have been tons of scholars who have said like, you know, this is whiteness working itself out. This is whiteness creating new tools to explain itself. Even the way that we talk about race, you know, today has something to do with the shifts that were happening, um, you know, of the West's ability to rename itself and make sense of its uh, you know, becoming white populations at the you know end of the 19th and early 20th century, right? So, I think it's not necessarily that whiteness is more visible on the internet. But to me, what is interesting is that um, there are there are certain uh, performances that I think we like to call neutral (laughs) that when taken up on the internet, you know, we can more clearly mark as uh, performances which are attached to the fantasies of whiteness. And what is interesting to me is that, you know, the internet sometimes lowers the barrier to who we think can participate in those fantasies. So if One of the things that, if one of the fantasies that the internet satisfies for us is a desire for frontier, then, you know, how do we explain expressions of a desire for frontier among anonymous bodies whose phenotype we can't see?
0: Mm
1: -hmm. In that new question, to me, it helps us to clarify and answer a lot of other questions that we've had sitting around and sort of Africana studies and critical race theory that have been real sort of analytic problems, which is that we know race is not biological. We know race is not dependent on phenotype. We know race is a social construction, but all of our ways of thinking about race up until now have relied so heavily on the phenotype of the bodies doing something that now the internet sort of forces us to have to grapple with, what about these other activities that we can't, where we can't locate the body that's doing them? How do we explain them? Do they still have something to do with race? Do they still have something to do with whiteness?
0: So in a sense, the performativity of whiteness, it becomes so visible in those particular areas in order to show that you are, your white or to show your unmarked By racialization, so there's that kind of sense of um, creating in jokes or um, or kind of repeatable themes and 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 tropes, so that there's a kind of inside inside knowledge. It's like a kind of gentleman's club, like the secret handshake to a gentleman's club.
1: Yeah, well, (laughs) I mean, what what I'm really saying is that you know, for me, what is productive about thinking about race and whiteness and the internet is that we get to identify different, you know, versions of whiteness. Um, The most visible version of whiteness is often, the most visible version of whiteness that most of us are trained to be able to notice is its most militant versions, which are those moments where, you know, users or people in real space actively avow a white supremacist position or through the sort of strange alchemy of internet uh, you know, activity, start to avow Western chauvinist positions, right? That's sort of like a new um, kind of allegiance mm-hmm. to have. But then there's also a bunch of other kinds of displays or kinds of activity or kinds of interaction that we might mark as unmarked which we can suddenly say like, no, it's not unmarked to desire to have the internet because it's supposed to provide a frontier. That is the, you know, a kind of transformation or translation of a latent Western desire that we associate with a kind of maybe liberalism, you know, and in earlier moments with an overt colonial drive. Um, You know, there are, expressions of colorblindness that have a very particular version on the internet where we associate the fact of uh, the internet being this very, you know, our most advanced technology that most people use and we live our lives through these mediated, um, you know, devices that are so, you know, advanced, we're all living in some sort of future. And, you know, the fact of that Happening across this advanced technology makes us think that the technology is is colorblind, mm. that race didn't follow us onto the internet, right. or that we didn't bring it there, right? But we can, uh, you know, kind of mark that out. <laughs> even the desire for that, um, as a desire to repress a colonial past, and in that way, you know, all participate in in an act of unmarking which is a strategy of whiteness. So like to me, it, you know, it gives, it it suddenly gives um, I think it gives us more sights and moments to uncover and name and challenge more than just the most militant visible versions of whiteness. Because of course, if those things, doing that, you know, somehow goes out of fashion. Does that solve the problem for us? No, not really.
0: I want to, I want to drill down on that, that phrase you used, unmarking, which I think is really, really useful here. Uh, and it reminds me of um, uh, an essay by um, the music scholar Georgie e. Lewis, where he talks about um, the different perspectives on avant-garde music. So he talks about the urological and the aphrological perspectives on avant-garde music, specifically looking at the difference between, say, someone like John Cage or Charlie Charlie Bird Parker. So European avant-garde music is is um, exemplified by Cage and this kind of um, chance encounters and, um, and kind of wiping the slate clean and lots of um, minimal music, especially things like 433, which is a completely silent piece of, of music. Um, and, you know, the European avant-garde is exemplified in, in sort of painting by, by Malevich's Black Square or the erased de Kooning or th- those kinds of um, sort of erasures of a past and er, specifically an erasure of a kind of European past, which is the erasure of the Holocaust, right? So in the, in the sort of mid-part of the 20th century, this kind of late modernism was exemplified specifically by this kind of clean, white white clean. Whereas, as, as Lewis suggests, um, the, the astrological perspective on avant-garde or experimental music is essentially jazz music, whereby you're playing, a jazz musician is playing um, around with so-called heads, pieces of, of jazz music which have, which have been passed down through generations of jazz musicians. So you're kind of experimenting around these kinds of, this historical tradition of, of jazz music. So the, the, the point that Lewis is making is that um, European versions of, of, of progression and forward thinking is to like cut away from the past, is to completely wipe, stay clean, but for, for specifically a kind of African American experience which is the history of slavery you you, to wipe the slate clean would be would be disingenuous would do would do a disservice to the very important history the memory of that history that you need to memorialize in order for it not to happen again or hopefully for it not to happen again Um, so i think what's really interesting about this kind of idea of of this kind of once once white people go on the internet there's a form of like attempt at being like you say colorblind or trying to unmark oneself to try and escape from that kind of racial, that racial relation um, that would exist in the so-called real world. world. Because like you say, phenotypes are invisible and on the internet. Um, And I'm just, it just just reminds me of, um, you know, being on on Instagram um, at the beginning of last year, uh, this time last year and where, you know, all of us white people were posting, you know, shit ton of BLM stuff like black squares, right? Um, and there's this real performance of not just you know you you obviously most of your research is probably on kind of white supremacist alt-right right-wing kind of understanding of whiteness but there's also going to be the kinds of like the socially liberal folk like us who are like posting like uh you know we support these causes in an attempt to disavow a certain race relation, in, in a sense, of trying to try and abnegate a certain type of um, privilege or hierarchy in, in a way. Um, and I find that obviously the internet is absolutely the site for, for that process. You know, we can't, you can't go on the internet these days, you can't go on Facebook or Instagram without seeing some, some white person saying, isn't this awful? And I'm, I, I'm, I'm absolutely the same, you know, I do exactly the same thing as soon as some awful world event happens, you know, we, we, uh, we exclaim.
1: Mm. I mean, I, I think, um, so this week in my class, in my my (laughs) Africana studies class, (laughs) I teach foundations Africana studies and um, We've been reading about um, uh, the sort of diasporic political consciousness of the 1930s and 40s, um, the rise of Pan-Africanism and the shift that happens, you know, with the arrival of the Cold War to a more domestically focused uh, politics in the United States. Um, And alongside that, we're also reading uh, just a little bit of Frantz Fanon's Wretched of the Earth. We read the section on violence and we talk about um, violence. And one of the things that we discuss in the class is that, you know, Fanon um, is making the point that for racially subordinated peoples, um, the violence enacted by the sort of liberal democracies that have colonies. <laughs> Um, is not uh, treated the same way in the colony as in the domestic space. In the domestic space, violence is like not a political tactic. Politics happens in some other way that's not violent. But for those spaces, you know, filled with racially subordinated people, violence is itself a governing tactic. It's a governing tool and it's atmospheric. It can explode at any moment. Um, and it, struck, it actively structures every moment of life, um, either by its actual presence or by the threat of the arrival of violence. So I'm, I'm saying this to say that it's a slightly different question than memorialization.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: When We talk about like, you know, the sort of uh, need to understand some kind of legacy or history or the sort of constant presence of that legacy or history isn't in a kind of memorial? It's not in a community memorialization, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's in the it's it's made present <laughs> by the ongoing tactics of the state, um, which then mean that uh, you know the state actively makes it impossible to um, you know. To, to understand oneself as, as part of like a clean slate or a new moment, right? Um, yeah, so uh, I forget where I was going with that. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but I think it's to say that, you know, um, I mean, we got, we got to talking about this because we're talking about unmarking. Right and the way that um, unmarking is a kind of feature for the preservation of whiteness, right? Whiteness, if it is unmarked, is um, uncontestable. Um, It's invisible, it appears as universal, as normal, as a sort of base starting point for society and politics and civil interaction. Um, And it does operate through a kind of routine, uh, shedding of the conditions of possibility that make us arrive to a moment of actual white supremacy in its various, you know, liberal or conservative forms. Um, yeah, and I and I think, you know, all of that is to say, like, uh, it, it does give us something else to look for when we look at online activity, right? It does it does allow us to say, like, okay, indulging in a kind of a historical um, uh, commentary, right? Eng- engaging in a historical commentary, even if, you know, even if the only historical, relatively, you know, recent historical commentary is what we have to juxtapose it to, um, it, that we can read that as a as a desire to to live in an unmarked way, but we also, like, I am I, also, I, I'm also interested in tracking whiteness and race on the internet because I take seriously the fact that, like, if we live so much of our lives through dig- digital mediated platforms, um, it means that we live a lot of like very small moments, right, online. We scroll, we like, we share, we like see something and ignore it. We keep going, you know, like our phones tell us like, oh, remember this moment from five years ago? Like, do you want to share this photo? And we like, you know, at breakfast say like, no, I'm not going to do that. You know, like it's (laughs) those sorts of um, uh, tiny, tiny moments do something to normalize what is already embedded in, the general attitude towards the technology, right? So I think it's also interesting to see the internet as a kind of cultivator. That like, if, w- if we want to be able to name making a historical commentary as something which partakes in a very long tradition of unmarking, then we have to also be able to say like, this is the digital version of this much longer t- tendency And here are all of the ways that participating in this has been normalized because of how we've taken up social media into how we do society. I don't know if any of that is actually relevant to what it is we're talking about, but.
0: Of course it is. Um, I'm so jealous of your students. Every time we have these (laughs) kinds of conversations I just come away thinking I wish I was in her class (laughs) it's absolutely fantastic um some of this kind of leads on to what your what your more current research is about which is sort of more sort of data coloniality right Mm -hmm. so where whereas um maybe your previous research was looking at the ways that people interacted on the internet and the kind of expressions of whiteness on the internet. Now you're perhaps looking at more in the ways of uh, more the more the ways that um, the internet becomes a source of uh, a source of extraction, value extraction. Right.
1: Yes, so, so somewhat. <laughs> somewhat. Yeah, I mean, we in that. So one of the things that I'm really interested in is. Um, uh, just digital coloniality, right? Thinking about coloniality as those processes or mechanisms by which colonialism survives formal decolonization and so continues on to structure how we still live <laughs> and, like, how we still um, occupy the globe, how we still sort of participate in the global, if we're thinking, you know, the way that. The global is described by Denise Fajeda da Silva as like a colonial invention. Um, I'm interested in how, um, you know, the digital is not just not divorced from that period, but, you know, has innovated new forms of coloniality. And so in the sort of, you know, um, information gathering (laughs) I'm doing around that, There is, um, on the one hand, the question of data colonialism, which is um, research that's actually done by Nick Coultery and Ulysses Mejias, but um, they're looking at how uh, data mining and um, sort of the monetization of data, which is obviously collected from the everyday actions, those sort of, you know, very small everyday actions that we were doing on social media, how that, you know, it becomes extracted and turned into new forms of capital and um, how that maintains us in a kind of colonial relationship to the internet. Um, And there are other people who are working on, you know, other ways of thinking about the relationship between the internet and um, colonialism, there's, I'm, not, I'm gonna mispronounce her name but um, Nicole Starosielski, uh <laughs> wrote a really great book called the under the undersea network that um, that focuses on uh, all of the material infrastructure that gives us the internet which is in large part a a globally present network of undersea cables that bring sort of fiber optic, you know, the transfer of information, and then there are. That's in addition to like warehouses that actually store data or whatever. Um, and you know, her book looks through how that undersea network is built directly on the pre-existing uh, infrastructure of radio, which is obviously established. Um, as a kind of colonial form of communication. And so, but those those, um, studies are really thinking about how we as sort of users are subject to the colonial drive that's built into the infrastructure or sort of capitalist monetization of uh, internet life. Um, And I'm trying to complement that by thinking about how um we are sort of conscripted as participants in the tendencies of modernity, the latest of which is digital life. Um, and so how we also find ourselves um, you know, participating in, normalizing, fetishizing, um, sometimes requiring the continuation of, uh, Relationships, which you know, are the foundation of the colonial relationship.
0: So, I mean, it's been well documented and well and very well discussed that um, it is just good good business sense to um, allow users and promote users to share reactionary material online. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's something that right wing newspapers have been doing for decades, if not longer. Um, it's just that now the more shares, the more likes and the more clicks means the more income for Facebook and and the like. Mm-hmm. Um, do you see, I mean, what do you think the kind of end game there is? What happens next?
1: Well, I mean, <laughs> I think, you know, I mean, the end game is obviously profit, <laughs> and I think yeah. you know, like, <laughs> the end game is profit, and you know, it's profit for capitalism, which is always racial capitalism. So I think also, you know, w- w- like, there's there's also a tendency when we think about the internet to privilege the Western user, and to think like, oh, this is how the Western user is being exploited. Um, but you know, in in Another one of my classes, I guess I can say. <laughs> I teach a class called "Social Media Empires and e Colonialism," and um, you know, one of the things that all of our work leads us up to um, analyzing is Facebook's program called Free Basics, okay. which it was launched in twenty fifteen, and is supposed to bring the internet to the global south. So it's a similar style to like. America Online, um, which (laughs) I don't know, I don't really know how to explain, but it's essentially like, you know, in the earlier days of, you know, personal computing, you accessed the internet through AOL. Sure.
0: Okay. Oh, right, America Online,
1: yeah. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) AOL. (laughs) Um, And so similarly, it's just sort of like an analogy, similarly, Facebook's free basics program is supposed to bring the internet to places that don't have the internet um, where the way that you access the internet is through Facebook. You log into Facebook in order to be connected to the internet. Um, And this, you know, the arrival of Facebook's free basics program along with the other um, social media, you know, services that Facebook provides like WhatsApp have obviously deadly and horrible consequences in a place like Myanmar, right? In the, in the class that I teach, we focus, we, you know, we spend some time thinking about how Facebook spreads by justifying its expansion um, in the claim that connectivity is a human right, which directly mirrors early colonial claims about the spread of civilization and the kind of benign effect of the arrival of these um, powers who are also engaging in some kind of extractive business. But it also has a a really horrible effect for the lives of the people who occupy the global South. Um, And that's that's a direct result of Facebook's business practices. Um, and the fact that they didn't actually have content moderators who could speak the local languages. And so when content was being flagged as you know hate speech and um, as Islamophobia, Facebook had no mechanism to even say that it that it you know violated community guidelines. and so it didn't violate community guidelines. Right? And so you know, there is, there is a kind of legacy that Facebook is participating in and the way that it is trying to capture markets, trying to transform populations across the global South into markets, right? In part of um, Zuckerberg's, you know, white paper on connectivity, you know, and on his, his, you know, reporting about free basics, he says something like, you know, sometimes people who don't have the internet don't understand why they should have it. And he sees, you know, part of his project is trying to explain to people who don't have the internet why they should want to be connected across the internet. Okay, like if you don't hear in that trying to explain to indigenous populations why you should own private property, Mm -hmm. right? This is the sort of, this is the digitized version. Okay, trying to explain to a population for the purpose of transforming them into a kind of market. Why they should share your same values, even though they may not in any direct way benefit from those, you know, from the arrival of that technology and the imposition of those values, right? Facebook, in that way, is absolutely benefiting from a legacy of colonial relationships, participating in the legacy of colonial relationships, and doing it in an unmarked way by presenting it as a set of human rights.
0: Yeah. Sounds like um, he's a sort of modern-day Christian Christi- Christian missionary.
1: Yes, exactly. He's proselytizing I believe the
0: internet. My values.
1: Yes, he's proselytizing the benefits of connectivity and technology, which is honestly, you know, rich <laughs> because it's also, you know, in this same week that we think about Facebook's role in the Rohingya genocide. Um, we also look at, you know, part, if part of, part of the breakdown there was that Facebook didn't have appropriate content moderators, but this also then gives us a view onto, into like how Facebook actually works. If the internet is supposed to be this new clean frontier, how does it stay new and clean? Well, it does that through like tons of other human misery by actually employing content moderators whose job it is to sift through all of the violent, sexually violent and pornographic material that is shared on the internet that the average, especially Western user does not want to see. So we talk about a a brilliant documentary that is both brilliant and absolutely harrowing called The Cleaners (laughs) that focuses on content moderators in the Philippines who, you know, it's their, their job is to go through all of the content that's posted um, on Facebook and take down, you know, what is objectionable. But then that means that you have people whose area of expertise is beheadings, right? In the, you know, in the documentary, they're interviewing one of the content moderators who can describe how the kind of laceration uh, in a beheading video means that the people doing the beheading used a certain kind of knife. Um, or you have people whose area of expertise is child pornography. I mean, you know, and without psychological services, without robust training, without any wet, you know, they're coerced into these jobs and coerced into not talking about them, right? Those are the conditions of possibility for our new mediated fantasy utopia frontier. Okay, and like that to me is the way, that to me is like, you know, an absolutely necessary way of conceptualizing of digital coloniality beyond the question of whether or not we as users are having our data, you know, extracted from us.
0: What an incredible, horrible (laughs) vision I didn't even think I didn't even think about who keeps me clean on the internet but yeah wow that's incredible like and, and you know we have long conversations about um you know the help or the cleaner right who who's the person who comes into your home to keep your home clean in, you know, in the UK it's so often, uh, well everywhere, so often um, undocumented migrants or people working cash in hand because of various different uh, migra- migrant issues. Um, and now you have that exact same relation in, in, in the internet. <clears throat> Mind blown. <laughs>
1: Horrible and incredible is the intersection at which my work sits.
0: <laughs> yeah, it, it really does. This is, it's so fascinating and so horrific. And you know, I mean, if you if if you you know if you didn't need therapy from other things, then this is something you, you need therapy to, to deal with. Um, I wonder if um, we're probably running out of time now, but I wonder if uh, if there's anything you could say about. Um, ways in which there is some form of, of hope for, for um, I, I hate using the term resistance because I find it wholly inadequate when we talk about, um, you know, potentials for systemic change and so forth. But is there any kind of spaces that you could, you know, we, we often look at, you know, someone like Paul Mason is such a, a kind of techno-utopian when talking about things like the Arab Spring and so forth. I wonder if there's any kind of little glimmer of lights or hope that you you can see amongst all of your work or is it all just piles of shit?
1: <laughs> I mean, I'm not big on hope. Um, I think the internet as a kind of tool of communication um, has all of the possibilities of human imagination because we can use tools in, in, in a number of ways that are not necessarily um, the ways that are suggested to us. And so, you know, for me, I think in order to to be able to conceptualize resistance, we have to know what it is we're resisting. If we don't know that there are people whose job is to be paid and not living wage (laughs) um, in the Philippines, which I'm sure Mark Zuckerberg got, you know, content cleaning services because of the legacy of the relationship of the Philippines to the United States and other countries of the West. If we don't know that that exists, then we may think, um, yeah, let's get something shadow banned on Instagram. That's a kind of resistance.
0: Sure.
1: But if we know that actually shadow banning is probably the result of somebody having to go through all of those posts as part of their totally exploited job, you know, and then decide to, you know, recommend that everything with this hashtag on it be banned, we might be able to rethink how even our digitized modes of resistance might come at some serious expense. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, that then to me leaves us with the question of like, okay, well, then how do we get a bigger view of what's really happening on the internet? And part of that might just be using the internet as the communication tool that it is for different kinds of education with also the caution that like, (laughs) you know, monetizing, um, monetizing our interests, trying to get the word out there by getting a bunch of followers and becoming an influencer is also <laughs> a very like um, neoliberal mode of existence, you know? So I don't think, I think, I think in dealing with this question of resistance on the internet, we have to understand that everything is going to be very messy, that we are navigating a number of corporations, whose immediate effect is going to be the exploitation of someone. Even the devices that we use are full of you know, rare minerals and made by people who are you know, trapped in their jobs in very literal ways, right? That like whatever step we take is going to be extraordinarily messy And perhaps the most radical thing that we can do is to figure out just how messy it is, right? Like just how many people are involved in my decision to post this thing that I think is going to be informative, but also requires all of the same mining contracts that existed a hundred years ago to still exist today.
0: Sure. I think that's it. Okay. (laughs) thank you so much uh, <laughs>
1: thanks thanks uh, for chatting with me and having such a nice conversation
0: hey it was fantastic and um listen uh, we're gonna have you back on um I, i'd like to keep talking to you about other things um so expect a phone call
1: great
0: uh, we can figure something out in a, in a couple of months time um but yeah thank you so much i'm gonna let you get on with your um your evening that was my conversation with Christine Godding Doty about issues of whiteness on the internet and the coloniality of data. If you want to find out more about her, follow her on Twitter at Godding Doty, which is G O D I N G D O T Y, all one word. You can follow me on Instagram at Tontravat or Twitter at Tontravat, both of which are T O M T R E V A T T. And you can follow Repeater Radio on Twitter at repeater underscore radio. And that is spelt how you'd expect it to be spelt. Catch me next time. I'll be speaking to uh, more guests. Um, This is a podcast that comes out monthly. Um, So thank you for tuning in and speak to you soon. Bye-bye.